Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Julia Burke. We're at Bodecker Cellars in Portland. We want to thank Stuart and Athena for graciously using, letting us use their space today. A beautiful space for this interview. So thank you to both of them. And Julia, thank you for being here with us. We really appreciate that. Such a pleasure. Uh, the first question, as you know, to get you rolling is why wine? Why wine? I, um, I got into wine by accident. I feel like a lot of us did. Uh, I was in college. I um, think was given Oz Clark's Introducing Wine as a gift. I was 19. I'm not sure what that person was thinking, but they were totally right because I started reading it like, wow, wine has geography and politics and a lot of things that I'm really interested in. And I would send my mom, to, I feel like I can say this now 15 years later, I would send my mom to the store to buy like two different, I'm like, we have to taste a Chilean Sauvignon Blanc and a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc together and we'll notice a difference. We're going to notice that they taste different and that's going to be cool. And so um, I was really kind of exploring wine, um, you know, with my, with my parents <laughs> at an early age. And um, then I went wine tasting and it was actually the end of the day. They were, the winery was about to close. It was my first time ever wine tasting. It was in my home region of uh, Western New York in Niagara Escarpment. And uh, they, we did a tasting. We were talking about the wine. And uh, they actually just offered me a job. They were like, do you want to work here? Um, <laughs> first, they uh, offered me some of their uh, they had 1989 Jouvry Chambertin. I was, by the way, 21 at this point. I should clarify. <laughs> this was a few years into my wine journey. and. Um, they were drinking some like 99 Louis Jadot Givry Chambertin behind the counter, just the two of them, because they were closing up for the night, and they let me have some of that. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool and unlike anything I've ever had in my life. And that's when they brought out the job application and handed it over the, the counter. So I really fell into it by accident. I was majoring in Asian studies at uh, University of Buffalo and had no plans to get into wine, but I started showing up all the time. It was a small family winery, much like so many of the ones here. There was always something to do, vineyard, production, events, tasting room, all of that. So um, I learned a ton. And then all of a sudden, I realized that uh, as soon as harvest ended, I wasn't going to have any hours because, <laughs> again, small family winery. So I started emailing wineries in South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. And um, I got back two offers. And remind, reminder, I had no experience. I had worked one harvest. I'd been working in the wine industry for like three months. I was like, you know what? I can lift things. I got a sense of humor. I work hard. I don't need a lot of sleep. You know, <laughs> there's that. Uh, and uh, one of the offers was in South Africa, and they were um, really all about an educational experience. I, I had the opportunity to be there for almost six months. Um, it was a really long, uh, really involved internship. Only two of us would be interns. Um, and that was at Blauklippen in Stellenbosch. And I thought that sounded like an opportunity I couldn't pass up. And you can imagine after doing that and spending six months in beautiful South Africa, I was pretty hooked on wine as a thing. Um, I did spend a bunch of years uh, mostly in journalism, editing, writing few different jobs there, but I never really let go of, of wine. I either had a side job um, in retail, or I was showing up at night in Niagara to go work harvest um, and help, help people out there, um, or just uh, in, enjoying wine, doing some bartending. Um, and in, uh, let's see, about 2015, I realized that I liked writing a lot for fun, and I didn't want it to be the reason I made all my money. <laughs> and I loved wine, but I was totally fine with that being my job. I loved the people that I worked with, and I loved the social aspect of working in the wine industry. The community was incredible. I wanted more of that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I made the decision to make it my entire life. <laughs> it was a bit of a process. <laughs> You mentioned being interested in kind of wine as a, as a topic to start with. I'm curious about once you started doing the work, what was appealing to you about being in the industry and doing the work? I loved the physical work. I loved the manual labor. I loved the camaraderie of being kind of sleep deprived and having something bigger that you're all working towards together. I love um, 
you know, when you work in, uh, in journalism or marketing, a lot of times it doesn't really feel like you have something that you can show. And I, I did this, I made this. Um, and wine is not only that, but putting something in front of somebody and saying, this is where I'm from, or this is, this is a place that I love. Um, and that was pretty spectacular, spectacular to me to, go, to be able to go from um, this kind of hard work and the labor and the day-to-day -day and where everything, you know, the finished product feels so far away, and then to also be part of the telling of the story and watching somebody's face when they taste that that effort. Um, that was pretty special to me. I've always really loved um, just like, hard work and um, I don't mind long hours. I like, you know, the camaraderie of working harvest and everybody fighting over the Spotify and the, <laughs> um, you know, even like digging out tanks. Um, I, when I was in South Africa, they gave me a shovel as a parting gift because of uh, enjoying digging out tanks as much as I did. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's that combination of um, being sort of the behind the scenes person and doing all of this tough work that's very, very like day to day. And then also, um, I've been lucky enough that I've been able to be part of the bigger picture and the storytelling piece. So tell me about, you mentioned South Africa, tell me about that, that kind of the, what did that, you'd, you'd worked in one spot before that, what was different about your second experience and what did you enjoy about that experience specifically? Well, it was definitely a trip to go from, you know, Niagara escarpment where frost is a constant concern. Um, it's, as we all know from this year, it's starting to become one here too, but this is New York State where that is just constantly a conversation where people would question whether we could ripen, um, you know, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon. Spoiler, yes, we can. Um, but uh, cool climate, you know, truly cool climate winemaking. And then go to South Africa where the concerns are uh, sunburn on the grapes. Or, um, you know, you stop, you decide to stop trying to figure out Celsius to Fahrenheit because over like 45 degrees, you just don't want to know. Um, and, uh, you know, these kind of like efforts to make sure that you're getting freshness. And, and, and Stellenbosch has a lot of really good cooling influences, so it works. But um, it was a completely different climate. Uh, so that was the first thing. It was, um, I mean, I love my home region. It's beautiful um, in a very different way, but I've probably never been anywhere more strikingly beautiful than Stellenbosch in South Africa when you go outside and you know, the sun is rising on a mountain range and you can, you're not even that far from the ocean at that point. And some of these regions, you're right on the ocean and it's, um, it's a pretty amazing place just physically. And, um, Everything was different in terms of, you know, the, the people. I mean, Niagara is a bunch of families with, you know, their kids doing a lot of the work. And Stellenbosch was an established wine industry where there were whole crews and teams. And um, Blauklippen in particular had, a, you know, a, a kindergarten on site and English language classes and all sorts of things for their staff, which was really cool. Um, so it was amazing to see like, oh, this is what an established wine region is like. This is what it would be like to have um, a career in this field. And you don't have to be born into it. You don't have to have, you know, like your parents started a winery. Um, so that was pretty mind blowing too. What about your wine education? Obviously at this point, it's still fairly informal. You're kind of learning on the job. What were you learning and what were you finding most exciting about as the world of wine was opening up to you? I loved the science. I loved being able to, as a harvest intern, do labs and learn about the numbers. Doing vineyard sampling was fascinating to me. Um, I was really lucky in both places, uh, both um, in, in Niagara at, uh, at Freedom Run and then at, at Blauklippen that I was allowed to and encouraged to learn about actually what, why, what's going into the decisions being made. And um, you know, at Blackclipen, it was all native fermentations, which was really interesting. And I was learning about like, you know, okay, what what are the reasons for that? How do we manage that? Um, and uh, it was. I, I had endless questions. People were really patient with me, which was great. Um, I was really there to learn in every situation. And I also got to do some, some tasting and visiting other uh, producers as well. So I was able to learn from them too. Um, I was blogging about it at the time. And I'm really, really happy that I did. Because at the time, I had this blog. And you know, this was back before like the wave of everybody having a blog. But I just kind of wanted um, to not have to have the same conversation with 15 different family members and friends you know, when I got home. So it was a way to keep all my memories in one place. And now, 
my Master of Wine student, uh, I really need examples all the time. And it's so nice to be able to go back and like read. And granted, they're old at this point, but go back and be like, oh, I wrote down like all of the technical procedure, like why they made all these decisions and why they did these things in the vineyard. Like that's actually really helpful now. Um, so I was really trying to get as much as I could out of every single day. So you talked about sort of 2015 being kind of a big turning point for you. Tell me about um, what you were thinking at that point and what you kind of wanted to do next. I knew that it was time to get an actual wine education uh, because while I'd had all these great jobs and learned so much, um, I realized that there were gaps. I had started tasting with a great group and I was living in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. Um, There's a fantastic group uh, that I was tasting with for a little while and their global knowledge was excellent. And I already knew that I had some gaps in my knowledge. Uh, for example, I worked uh, big box retail. Um, I worked at a larger retailer in, uh, in Western New York specifically where uh, in my job interview, they asked me to name my favorite wines of Spain. They did a lot of business with Spanish wine. And here I am about to work for a major retailer. Spain is such an important you know, region in the store and in, like, on, in our market. And I could not name a mainstream Spanish wine region off the top of my head and I just said Bierzo because that was the only one that I could think of. <laughs> my interviewer was like, you are a nerd, wow. Um, and the truth is that I couldn't have told you at that point like a major Bordeaux producer. I couldn't have told you a major Rioja producer. Um, but I was drinking a lot of Bernarda and Menthea. <laughs> like, so um, there was a lot of just kind of weird stuff around the world that I was, was drinking and enjoying. Um, but uh, I was about to, I wanted to pursue a, a full-time wine job and I really needed to get an education and fill in my gaps. So I went and got my WSET level three um, and then uh, took a job as a wine buyer in Chicago. And um, I, I, I loved that job. I loved my boss. He famously said to me at one point, you know, we can't have an all cab franc business plan. <laughs> so that should give you an idea of like how much education I still needed on, on the global uh, world of wine. But it was a great learning experience. So tell me about the, the WSET experience for you. You mentioned why it was important. What did you get out of it and what did you kind of, at the end of it, how did you sort of feel you had progressed? It was amazing. I, um, I went to the Napa Valley Wine Academy. So this was the whole level three in just a few days. Um, it's a very intense couple of days and uh, I knew right away that I was going to I was going to discover a lot of gaps in my knowledge. I already knew that they were kind of like theoretically that they were there, but uh, to go through all of the major world wine regions and also to learn how to taste. Um, over the years I had been in wine at this point, I developed my own vocabulary for how I tasted wine, my own way of understanding wine. I have ADHD, I have a little bit of synesthesia. I, am a, I, I did not have like a globally recognized way of talking about wine, which is of course what the WSET is all about. And while that was a real challenge to learn how to speak about wine that way, it really clicked for me that if you taste a wine and you write down a description and hand it to someone who is not tasting that wine, they should have a pretty good idea of what it is from what you just said. That really clicked for me. Um, and I could see the importance and the value of it. And I also remember uh, one of the instructors at Valley Wine Academy started talking about the MW program. And um, I had heard of it, and I didn't really know a whole lot about what it entailed, but I knew I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I asked a question about it, and I was sitting in the front row, and he said, I can see it in your eyes. You're going to do it. You're going to do that program. I can tell right now. And yeah, seven years later, here I am. So. Uh, Genjay Alton was correct. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. And I knew as soon as I started doing my level three that I wanted to pursue diploma. Mm -hmm. so, so we've had a few people in our interviews talk about that. But tell us about that, the leap from level three to diploma. What, is, what does it entail? And, and what made you decide that you needed to do it? Yeah, each of the leaps in WSET is pretty significant. Um, I, I have been, I was briefly a WSET instructor at Linfield and um, I can certainly say that the level level two to level three leap is very significant um, and tends to go from, um, you know, people who have maybe not worked in wine or not worked long in wine to people who are have worked several years in the wine industry. Um, and then with diploma, you're looking at something that is really quite a, a time commitment over at least two years. Um, you're looking at something where you really need to have a supportive job and home environment in order to get it done. Um, there's uh, you know, so much studying. It's really important to have a tasting group. 
when I started Diploma, I was in Chicago and I was tasting a lot because I was a wine buyer, but I did not have a tasting group. And um, that idea of having you know a study group and also just you know, people who are also pursuing the same program, so we're all tasting in the same way, we're all learning how to talk about things in the same way. Um, I didn't have that in Chicago. Chicago is a very Psalm-focused uh, town, at, the, at least at the time, I'm not sure now. Um, and so I noticed a big difference in how much I was struggling going from Chicago to when I came to Portland in the middle of the diploma program, and suddenly I had a tasting group with other people who were also in diploma with um, a community that, that was really aware of the WSET program and you know really recognized it. It was a game changer for me. I went from, um, you know, I, I didn't pass my unit three uh, tasting the first time. I had to retake it. And then I the next unit I sat was after I had been tasting with my group in Portland for six months and I got passed with distinction on my next tasting. So I, you know, <laughs> you can see the, the benefit of, of being around other people and just um, tasting the wines that are gonna be on the exam instead of just um, tasting, you know, cool, cool natty wine in, in fun bars in the loop, which is <laughs> what I was doing a lot of. Well, before we get you to Portland, I'm curious about your experience as a wine buyer because that's obviously a, an interesting, an interesting kind of step in the in the path there. So, tell me about uh, your experience doing that. What, what what made you kind of take take that uh, opportunity and how it went for you? What you kind of took away from it? Yeah, it was one of the happiest times of my life. Um, I had a great neighborhood in Chicago where this store was. It was called In Fine Spirits, uh, and um, my boss, Jaron, the owner, was just amazing. Uh, he told me in my interview that he was interested in helping me pursue my education goals, and he did uh, in many ways. He was incredibly supportive, and um, I had this incredible set of customers, all, like locals in the neighborhood, who were just interested in trying interesting stuff. I mean, sure, a lot of them had you know their taste and their and their wines that they liked, but I mean, I hand sold every bottle in the store, and I could get to know people, and I could you know taste wine and say, okay, you know, what customer is going to drink this? Such a key you know skill for a wine buyer, and it was it was just a really good opportunity to to build those those skills of just being able to assess quality really quickly, being able to assess like you know is does the price point reflect this wine? Is it reflect you know the neighborhood that I'm in? Like, are people going to go for this? And also, okay, you know, in what occasion am I going to sell this wine? Mm -hmm. um, and it was it was just fantastic. I loved you know, like I said, my customers, the neighborhood, um, the the coworkers and staff, and um, I never looked at anything the same way because you know once you've been a buyer, you're really kind of like thinking about, you're, you're always thinking about like, okay, what is that customer interaction gonna be? Like, in your production, you can get so into that mode, if you've never worked on that side of it, of you know your wine and your story, and it's all so interesting, and you have to be passionate about it. You have to be lost in it. But it is really good also if you can put yourself in the mindset of the person who has to then go and sell the wine, mm -hmm. and helping them out, and helping them out with, you know, a story and good information and, and something that's a little bit different and you know maybe it's interesting packaging too or it's um, you know something that is, is made a little differently and yeah I, I, I went from that job to briefly working as a sales rep and then I really felt like oh man like I, uh, I feel like everyone should you know Probably not everyone should be a sales rep. I think like there's, I, I certainly was not super cut out for it, but um, I think you know that experience of having to walk in and talk to a buyer and they don't necessarily care what you have to say. They don't necessarily have time for you. Um, like having both sides of, being on both sides of that table um, really humbled me and, and I will never forget that experience. So you mentioned, obviously, besides sort of looking for Cap Francs that you were so excited about, what else were you looking for as you built a wine list? You mentioned, obviously, the, the customer experience and, and you're sort of thinking down the line, but what were you looking for as you were building wines? What kind of wines excited you? What kind of stories excited you? Oh, I, I have always been really interested in um, you know, unique regional grapes, um, people who are trying to kind of revive um, maybe indigenous grapes of the region, people who are trying to 
um, I, because of, of getting my start in the Niagara Escarpment, I have always been a real believer in small up and coming regions. Um, I love to be a champion when somebody is doing something that I think really is great. I, you know, I, I can't count how many times in my life I've made somebody blind taste something, but I was pretty sure, like, you know, if they saw the label, they probably would have, you know, um, prejudices about it. But I loved bringing that to, to customers. Um, it was also it was a neighborhood of, of you know big fun reds. We had like wines that I wasn't as familiar with before from the Central Coast that were really exciting and cool. And um, it was uh, you know a really good time for me to. I mean the Chicago market's amazing. I hadn't worked in a market that big before, and having access to everything, I was able to see like oh you know this is what is coming out of. For example, I, I mentioned California again because. To be quite honest, when um, I was working in Niagara, I didn't drink a lot of California wine. It was kind of the big bad California, um, you know, like it felt a little bit too easy to like California wine. And we were all, you know, like Michigan, New York, like Vermont, Maryland. And um, I really started to fall in love with, um, with the beautiful, great wines of California. And I saw why my customers loved them. I saw why they were so thrilling to them. This also coincided with me going to Napa for the first time. So that was probably not a coincidence that I was able to see like, oh yeah, no, they, they're also like really cool winemakers, you know, who are really passionate about what they do. You know, I had, I, may, I maybe had some stereotypes as a young person about um, what Napa was going to be like. But uh, yeah, I, I would say those are the, the big themes for me. So before coming to Portland, what were your impressions of Oregon wine? I loved it. Um, I remember, um, so the, the larger retailer I worked at, Western New York Premier, I, we got the Wine Spectator magazines. We had all the back issues. And I remember, so this was in 2009, reading um, the coverage of the 2007 vintage, which uh, was pretty panned. Um, <laughs> the writers were kind of, you know, don't bother with this vintage. Um, and. I read it and you know coming from a, a cool climate region with really you know challenging weather sometimes I was kind of like hmm, that seems like a generalization like I bet that's not true across the board um, and I kind of just put it in the back of my mind but it made me start in being interested in Oregon wine and actually the first nice bottle I ever purchased was Archery Summit it was a gift from my professor in college who was my also my thesis advisor um, and he was my favorite professor and I found out that uh, he and his wife were wine drinkers, so I went and bought uh, Archery Summit wine for them. And I was like, I heard this is good. Um, <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I think it is. Um, and so it always was kind of on the radar for me. And then in Madison, my tasting group was very centered around this great wine shop called Square. It's right downtown in Madison. I have to give it a shout out. It's one of the best wine shops in America, in my opinion. Um, and Andrea Hilsey, the owner, was very connected. She had been to Pinot Camp. She was very connected with Oregon. and. Um, um, she had some really incredible producers, and so at our tasting groups, I would start to taste uh, Beaufrere and let's see, um, even some of the some of the older like they had some library vintages of Domaine Serene, White Rose, with all of their different oak programs, um, and I was just really floored uh, by the quality, by the beauty. I was already a Pinot Noir lover. Uh, we did Pinot Noir in Niagara, and before I came to Oregon, I my wine geek friends and I would kind of joke a little bit disparagingly about Pinot that, um, you know, if you're drinking a lot of Pinot, you're usually broke and disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, I, I, love, I love Pinot Noir. It is certainly true on the market. If you are just getting into wine, um, you know, trying to figure out what you're going to buy in the Pinot realm, it, it's not always easy to get, like, a bottle that you're really happy with what you paid and you're really happy with the quality. I think there is a little bit of a barrier to entry of knowledge with Pinot Noir. Um, I don't think people really get that who have only lived here because we are just surrounded by fantastic Pinot, and especially if you came up in the industry here, like you're getting to taste great Pinot for free all of the time. That's just not true in the rest of the market. And um, before I came here, I definitely felt like Pinot was uh, a, an interesting and beautiful grape, certainly a very challenging one, sometimes challenging to love, mm -hmm. um, but certainly challenging to make and grow. And um, I, I came out here uh, first, just um, on a visit, I had a, a partner who was living out here at the time, and I visited some some properties that I was uh, that I was representing, and I was just floored by 
the quality, the overall standard of quality, just the, being able to go around and, and taste, you know, at 10 different places and taste all these incredible bottles of wine. And I was just, you know, pretty rapidly falling in love with Oregon, just kind of from visiting these producers. And I was kind of like, well, you know, my, uh, my partner lives here. Um, my, uh, I, I really kind of miss, um, working on the production side. I mentioned I wasn't super cut out to be a sales rep. Um, sometimes I think you just need to like, uh, I call it um, hitting uh, like with a Nintendo, like when you, you look at your career, you kind of like pop it out, blow on it, pop it back in. Like <laughs> the way to do that in the wine world. Nobody is here's gonna get that. <laughs> Only you and me are gonna get that. This is, yeah, kids, this is how we used to fix a Nintendo. You would just pop it out, blow the dust off, pop back in, and then it worked. Um, and sometimes I think you need to do that with your life. And I think with wine people, that is working a harvest. I hadn't worked a harvest in a while at this point. I missed it. And um, in August of 2017, I uh, saw a harvest job opportunity. I applied for it. Two hours later, the winemaker called me and was like, um, we actually want to fill this quickly. Like, it's, you know, we had someone, we lost somebody, so like, we need to like, get this going. Um, and I resigned my job and then threw everything in my car and was out here two weeks later. So it all was a very, like, impulsive <laughs> decision. <laughs> but it was because of Pinot. So what was that harvest experience like? It was amazing. So this was at Alexana. Um, it was so fantastic. Was that Brian? Was that Brian, Brian? Weil, yeah, a wonderful winemaker, wonderful guy. He uh, told me on the phone that uh, Alexana was really, he was really interested in creating an educational harvest experience at Alexana for his interns. And that's absolutely true. Brian really makes an effort to uh, bring teaching into it to make sure that um, you're not just working the same job you know, for, for three months. Uh, you're getting to, t to try everything and um, getting to, to move around the winery and learn about why these decisions are being made. He's extremely open about you know, his, his process. He's a master blender. Alexander works with a lot of different small lots, and so you get to be part of that process. Um, I can't say enough about it as, a, as an experience. I fell in love with Oregon. I, I, worked, I worked my butt off. Um, I met a lot of really good friends, and um, I continue to think Alexander's making great wine, and I, I'm really, really happy that that's where I got my start here. I think, you know, there's not every harvest experience is a great one, and um, I think out here, Generally speaking, there are a lot of wineries that are really focused on the educational side for their interns, and I think that's wonderful. <laughs> he took us out tasting, too, so we got to meet a lot of people that way. It was nice. So with that kind of a quick decision and coming out for harvest, did you have, what did you think beyond that? I was not sure if I was going to stay in Oregon when I came out. The plan was I'm going to work a harvest. I actually had most of my stuff still in Chicago in a storage unit. I had thrown things in my Honda Accord, drove out here, and um, I did not have a plan for after harvest. I think there was, I was kind of like, okay, well, 50-50, I'll come back to Chicago, or I'll stay out here. Not really sure. Um, and it became quickly very clear that not only was this a great place with wonderful people, there were a lot of job opportunities. Um, I had never been somewhere with such a big established wine region where, for example, um, people recognized my WSET credentials and were, you know, they, they were, they recognized that like that that made me an attractive candidate um, where you could go and get like a full-time job that was a good job in the wine industry and again you don't have to be somebody's child you know to do that um, I had never been anywhere where I felt like I had so many opportunities in front of me and so uh, that made it a pretty easy decision uh, to stay and I I think I just I posted on Facebook like, hey, here's some things I like doing. Like, you know, if you guys want to like, if you if you if you if you know anyone who likes who needs this person, then uh, that's that's me. And that ended up being a cover like the best cover letter I ever wrote because <laughs> I ended up getting uh, to meet some really cool people through that. And uh, and then um, Morgan, who I actually knew from the Finger Lakes, Morgan McLaughlin at WBWA. Uh, sent me a message because we had stayed in touch for the last 10 years and or so and. Uh, she said, you know, looks like you also fell in love with Oregon. I, I did too. Uh, we'll come out here and uh, we could maybe use some help in the office. So come by sometime. <laughs> and what did that lead to? Uh, so I started out part-time at the WVWA. I was also working at a restaurant at the time. And um, I, I'm also really a, a huge fan of beer. This was a, a, a place where they, they had a really good tap list. And so I was 
diving into the beer side of Oregon too. Um, but it uh, it really was a good fit at the WBWA. There was a lot of things that. Um, there were a lot of things that I enjoy doing that, that were needed. Um, it's always been a pretty small team, uh, but it, uh, it, it became, I think, within the next year, a full-time thing. And it's been just the best way I can imagine to, to meet this community and serve this community and kind of um, give back to the production side and like the industry that I love so much, I think. Um, you know, I, it's not—it's not really giving back because I'm not volunteering. <laughs> it's a job, but it does kind of feel like we are—you know—we're all wearing so many hats all the time, um, and just trying to do our best to to be there for our members. Uh, that it—it it feels good. It feels like purposeful work, which um, was, I think, something that I felt like I might need to give up a little bit when I went into wine, <laughs> and that's not the case at all. So tell me about your kind of the as you entered the WVWA, what what it was, what, what was it working on at the time? What was what were the kind of the challenges, and what were the roles you set out to sort of fill in the next few years? Um, so the WVWA was in a point of of transition at that time. Uh, so Sue Horseman retired; she was the previous executive director. Uh, Morgan uh, came to to uh, fill the executive director role, and as I mentioned, uh, I had known her from when she did that role in the Finger Lakes, um, so I already knew that uh, she had an amazing leadership style and a, a great vision, um, and I knew that it was an exciting time to come on board, um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to, gosh, I'm trying to remember, We're, it's a crazy job, like there's always something going on. It is just the most different things happening at once. And I think, you know, that's really, I feel really lucky that I spent five years in a job where every day was different, you know, and um, there were needs from our very small members and there were needs from our members who are, you know, very big and they have their own whole marketing teams and, and you know, it was figuring out uh, what are the best ways to to fill all of those all of those needs and speak for all of those people and you know bring the region forward and it was it was pretty special to be able to work and for and represent and and you know eventually kind of become like one of the voices of a region that is so associated with high quality it was it was almost like it wasn't the job wasn't easy, but that part of it was made so easy by the fact that anywhere we went, people were like, oh, Willamette Valley, amazing. Amazing wine, beautiful, great Pinot Noir. I was like, yep, yeah, you got it, <laughs> exactly. Um, it, was, uh, it was really spectacular. I, I was able to do a lot of traveling. Uh, at the time, we were really ramping up uh, the Pinot in the City program where we would go on the road and, and do Pinot Noir events and seminars in like Chicago and uh, Houston, and it was really really fun. And then uh, of course, like the auction was was getting bigger each year, and um, it was. Uh, and then and then of course Oregon Pinot Camp. So it was just so exciting. There was so much going on all the time, and it was really a moment of a lot of. It felt like a lot of energy and a lot of forward momentum at the time. Of mm -hmm. course, I have nothing to compare it to. I wasn't, you know, I haven't been in this region that long, mm -hmm. but uh, it felt like a really cool time to be there. So give us an example of some of the projects you worked on or some of the kind of initiatives, just to give us an idea of what the WVWA kind of focuses on. Sure. So. Um, it, I have to bring my brain pre-COVID because, of course, a lot of things changed. But um, there, uh, and it, I mentioned uh, the, the road events we did. We also did things like, um, you know, SOMCON, TechSOM, uh, Minnesota Food Wine Experience, where uh, a lot of times either I would support somebody like Elaine Brown or, or Bree Stock MW um, doing a masterclass, or a couple times I got to teach, which was really fun, uh, and spread the good word of Willamette Valley wine uh, around the country. Um, we were able to uh, do events events here. There was uh, like Feast, for example, it was really neat. And that's um, those are opportunities to kind of do the, the more sort of fun marketing side of things. Like I, I love the, the deep education, but there is also something to be said for like, you know, Portland having a food festival. We're going to show up with like gorgeous glamping tents that like our incredible designer, Courtney Cunningham, uh, you know, sort of laid out and created for us. I should probably not drop my mic. <laughs> um, and uh, 
so there were, those were kind of like the event side on the smaller scale. And then of course the auction was uh, bringing trade out to the Lamed Valley to show them around, show them a great experience, have an educational event for them, and also raise funds for everything that we were trying to do. Um, and then Oregon Pinot Camp was just about to celebrate its 20th anniversary. And you know I already knew that it was an iconic event in the industry. So it was about kind of just taking it a little bit more to the next level each year. Uh, there was the day-to-day -day, um, was everything from you know just making sure our website was a great resource for the public because a lot of what we do is you know consumers want to come out to the valley. They need great information. They need all of it to be in one place. They need to be able to plan their trip. And that uh, led into the uh, development of a, a new website, which we ha we've had now for about a year. It's been really awesome. Uh, it's I got to do a lot of the writing for the site, and I got to watch, you know, kind of from start to finish the transition of you know changing our entire digital ecosystem, which was pretty crazy. Um, and making sure that if people are looking for anything about Willamette Valley wine, about Oregon Pinot Noir, um, that they can come to us for accurate facts and figures, which I, I research and try to keep updated all the time. Uh, and you know, see what, like, what wineries have sustainability certifications, and where can I stay, and where can I eat, and what other things can I do, and can I bring my kids, my pets, all of these things. We really. Um, wanted to try to make our members as visible to the public as we possibly could. And that's, you know, that's what we've been trying to do. And then, of course, the pandemic ended the roadshow and tra travel piece of things and became very much about um, making sure that our members have all the support they need to sell wine virtually, to sell curbside, to get um, people out for, you know, kind of drive through and, and to get people's, you know, club events, like make, make sure that everything is super visible on our site and make sure that um, people have, you know, a place to talk, like just be creating space for discussions between national sales managers, between tasting room managers, you know. Um, Emotional support is a really big part of you know what makes a community strong, and it was really important to us to create venues for for those conversations and candid conversations um, about you know how how everything was going, and then of course um, you know with there's wildfires, frost. It's really it was really important to have infrastructure in place to just you know be able to have members get the resources they need. Of course, Oregon Wine Board is amazing with giving uh, like mm -hmm. industry education and connecting people with great researchers and, and, and you know, making sure they have the technical information that they need and working with them has been super important. Um, but yeah, it's, there's a little bit of um, trying to be the, you know, the secretary, the janitor, the guidance counselor, <laughs> the hype man, the, you know, and um, we, uh, we try to succeed at all those things. Um, I think you know it's a it's a constant work in progress. Mm -hmm. So you brought up 2020 there. So I know for for a couple of the, we'll talk about the kind of the global part of 2020 first, and then your personal part of 2020. Tell me about how you saw the industry handle 2020. What were the biggest sort of moments for you, uh, and either for you personally or for things you saw during 2020 that kind of helped the industry get through? I loved seeing people's support for each other. Um, I loved like seeing people come together and like you know make hand sanitizer, donate wine to essential work, or give wine to essential workers to thank them, and you know um, take care of their staff and share resources. I loved seeing that Salud was so uh, strong in helping our vineyard stewards, you know, stay healthy and and stay informed of of you know COVID information as it came through because. There was about a year, and I mean, it's still the case, but man, early in the pandemic, the amount of information changing coming from, you know, our government officials, it was really, really tough, um, and it felt like we were constantly, like, I, I felt like I was updating the website every single day with, like, new guidelines, new restrictions, um, making sure our consumers knew what to expect, trying to support our um, our hospitality people, and I think, like, that it was really inspiring to me to see how many people out in the market wanted to buy Oregon wine. I had so many friends, family, and also just like people on social media like 
just say like, hey, I just I want to buy some wine. I want to support you know whoever. Sometimes people just send it to me. They knew I was studying, and they were like, hey, I don't I don't need any more wine. I've bought a lot of wine, but I want to support these wineries, so I'm just sending it to you. Um, and that really showed me like how how much people love Oregon, how much people love our community. Um, and so that was that was really cool. I just um, I was really touched by how strong we are all you know, together, and I know that that's a kind of a cliche, but it felt like maybe not every region would have had that strength. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I felt lucky there. And obviously, the Harvest 2020 brought its own challenges as well. How did the WVWA and how did your role, what was your role in that? It was super important for us to make sure everybody in our membership had as much information as we could possibly find, whether, you know, from, from scientists, from other regions who had also dealt with this, uh, from, you know, OWB was, you know, we worked with them on, on, on these, you know, just making, making sure that people could uh, access information quickly and ask questions. Um, we're not the first region to deal with wildfires. We certainly won't be the last, and unfortunately, you know, this is going to become part of the conversation more and more with, with climate change and it is so helpful to have the knowledge coming out of California and Australia um, where we can you know invite those people to a webinar or you know they can send us emails filled with information and, and that's fantastic um, it was also really important to help customers understand that um, you can't generalize about a vintage in a region as big as the Willamette Valley. I mean, if you're going to take seriously, and this is for the trade and consumers, if you're going to take seriously the idea of you know microclimate and site specificity, and this block is called this because it does this thing, and this block faces east and it does this, and you know we pick these two these blocks two weeks apart because of these differences. If you're going to take seriously all of these little nuances that we love about terroir, you cannot turn around and say, okay, well, the entire vintage was this in a three and a half million acre region. And um, it was important to us that whether people decided to not make wine, whether they decided to make wine, whether they decided to pick and then make the decision later, that they were supported and that we didn't have um, you know, consumers hearing like, oh, well, I, I heard this about the whole region, or I'm just not going to, you know, buy the wine, or, or something like that. Um, it's a challenge. It really is. Uh, you want to, you know, you want people to have good information, and in a year where you have an unprecedented situation, sometimes that information's not there yet. I would give the example of the frost this year as well. Um, sometimes, you know, the media wants answers right away, right now, you know, what does it all mean? And the reality is that we will know it harvest. <laughs> we will know, like, maybe a crop estimates. Like, wine takes a long time. The industry, um, you know, runs on a cycle of an entire year. and in terms of vine health several years, you know, and there's just some things that you have to wait and see on. And it, I think that it is a really good time to trust consumers and the trade. I think now is a really good time for us as an industry um, to take a leadership role in helping consumers understand, like, this is why, um, you know, this wine might like you know maybe somebody would choose not to make wine in this year this year because of this thing that happened and this person did make wine and they were able to you know to address some of the issues or this person made wine and it tastes you know like every other year like you know helping consumers understand these nuances is possible and it's good i think it's a noble pursuit and um, you know, the consumer wants authenticity. They want a real story. They want to know where their food comes from. They want to know where their wine comes from. And I think that we can trust them perhaps more than maybe some people realize um, and not underestimate them. That was a little bit of a, of a side rant about uh, <laughs> It's much appreciated. So at the same time, you mentioned the MW as, as something that had been had been foretold earlier on. So what made you decide it was time to dive into the MW? Um, I had finished my diploma, which is the um, a pretty hard prerequisite for MW. Um, 
and I had friends who had either started the program or were applying to the program. Um, and so it was something that we all talked about together and it was sort of a question of when rather than if at that point. Um, I have a dear friend, uh, Kim Oshiro, who had started the program and I think um, you know, she, was, she was really encouraging about like, okay, like, you know, application's open. Like, and um, I was very lucky to have, uh, to have the encouragement of Bree Stock MW as well. Um, we're, we're really lucky to have her here in Oregon in general and uh, I was very lucky that she has been incredibly encouraging um, of, of me pursuing this goal. So um, I had those things. I had the support of my family. Um, like, I think you, you can't overstate that because I think when you have a situation where you're trying to explain to a partner, perhaps, you know, young, young children, um, that like you're going to have a lot less time and they don't really get it, I think that that is really challenging. Um, my partner is an academic, so he definitely gets it. Um, my family uh, has been incredibly supportive. My work has been supportive. Um, Morgan encouraged this. She was uh, an incredible boss throughout the whole process of so far of, of applying and, and starting out in the program. And um, it was the right time. Mm -hmm. There's only so many times in your life when all of those things are kind of coming together. Um, and yeah, felt, it felt right. So how has the process gone so far? Um, so it's it's tough to do this in the pandemic. It's tough to do most things in a pandemic. Um, the MW program is very much, uh, I think, the, the, the fire that gets lit with everybody who stays in this program is the networking and the community and the like-minded people that you meet and you know the amazing MWs who go out of their way to help us. and. It is really, really hard to access that from a Zoom screen. Um, so I think I'm, I'm just really, really grateful that now uh, we've been able to get back to some in-person events. Uh, and it's just been spectacular. I have learned so much. Uh, I really feel like it, you know, every single day that I'm in this program, I'm a better person for it. And I've always told myself, if the day ever comes when the only value to me is passing the exam and getting the, the credentials, then that's the day that I walk away. Uh, because I want it to be bringing value to me every day and not just, you know, a sunk cost situation. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been amazing, one of the best experiences of my life. And, and at this point now, I've made some really good friends in the program. and. Uh, it's uh, one, of my, one of my dear friends, Samantha Cole Johnson, another of your interviewees and very important person in Oregon is in the program as well. And so it's, it's great to have people that you can vent to. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it has, it has gotten way better since uh, things have kind of opened up again. So take us through the timeline then. What, is, what, is, what, what are the kind of milestones along the way? What have you done and what is to come? Yeah, so it's structured a little bit like law school with a first stage, second stage, third stage. So I'm a stage one MW student. Um, the stage one uh, kind of, the way that you get to stage two is an exam of 12 wines blind and then uh, two essay questions. So practical and theory, just like the big exam. Um, should you pass through that, you get into stage two and then the exam is uh, the one that most people have heard of if they've heard of this program, which is the four day, um, you know, there's five different theory papers. There's three flights of, of 12 blind wines. It's quite a gauntlet actually. Um, and you don't normal, it's, it's a little unusual to pass them both at the same time and to pass them on the first try. So that stage tends to take a little bit of time. Um, some people do just kind of like, you know, step in, collect the paperwork and walk out and they've got their MW in three years, but uh, that's unusual. Mm -hmm. And uh, once you've gotten your, your practical and your theory passed, doesn't have to be together, um, you move on to uh, the research paper, which is uh, a deep dive into a topic that you find really fascinating. Um, hopefully you still find it fascinating at the end. <laughs> just like a PhD dissertation, you might get through a phase where you just don't want anyone to ask you about it. Mm -hmm. But um, that is meant to be something that is uh, measurable and, and you know, very like, uh, easy to kind of break down into something that you can really study. Um, so ideally not like a philosophical question, um, you know, why are we all here? Why is wine good? Um, can wine ever be, you know, objectively good? Uh, and more something like, you know, what are the markers of success for like this, like, 
this stage of the industry with this specific group, or like what um, is you know this chemical do in wine? What is this chemical doing in wine? Like, things like that. Um, it's very uh, technical, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it, honestly. It feels like a long way away, because I'm in stage one, um, but knock on wood, I will, uh, I'll get to that phase at some point, and you do have to have that proposal ready to go when you sit the big exam, because if you pass, you you got to be get you got to get going. You don't really have <laughs> a lot of time to to take a break. Um, it's uh, it's time to get that research paper started. So. So I know that in addition to your your day job, you also have you have your you have your fingers in a lot of things in the valley. So tell me about some of the other kind of projects or things you've worked on while you, while here. Uh, in addition to the WVWA stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the great things about this valley is everybody's doing a lot of different things. So um, I did get my WCT uh, teacher certification uh, in the last couple of years, actually right before the pandemic, which was really a bummer because I really love teaching and uh, I was for a while teaching uh, WCT at Linfield. And then uh, with the start of the pandemic, there was, there was just no in-person teaching, which is completely, you know, it's exactly how it was supposed to be, but it, uh, I do miss it. Um, I always enjoy teaching a lot. And then um, I uh, have done some some tasting and also just kind of helped out a little bit with um, my friend uh, my friend Ian Burrows over at Ari Vintners. I'm not sure if you've interviewed him yet, but uh, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. Um, and he's super connected in the Valley as well, so it's been really great to, to make friends with him and also just spend some time over there. Um, and uh, get a little bit of my, that, that harvest work that I really enjoy. Uh, and, um, Let's see. I do a lot of, um, I've, I've done a lot of kind of tasting group um, situations. <laughs> I feel like um, it's, it's really cool here that you can have multiple different kinds of tasting groups. There's that many people who are interested in, in furthering their knowledge and their study. Um, I've had tasting groups that were very WSET specific where it's a couple students who are about to sit and maybe I'm doing a flight for them. Or back when I was doing diploma, people were really supportive of me and doing just you know super specific to the exam. And I've had tasting groups where it's more, um, you know, let's break down like the, the winemaking um, and, and kind of more like, you know, production focused. Uh, and um, I have some people who I've been tasting with who are really supportive of my MW journey and they maybe want to do the process someday but they aren't in it yet um, and uh, yeah so that's kind of the various I, I feel like it sounds like I only do wine <laughs> but in terms of the industry those are a few of the things that I've been involved in um, and yeah, with uh, with COVID, of course, it was it made it a little bit harder to, to get around. But I do try to visit tasting rooms as much as I can. I know you only do wine. You can't you can't fool me. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> See, I drank cider one time. <laughs> one time. <laughs> Uh, so I, before we get on to kind of sort of future stuff, I'm curious about, we talked about OPC off camera briefly, obviously just wrapping up 2022. Yes. Uh, tell us about OPC 2022 a little bit and, and sort of for historical context, why it was such a big deal this year. Oh, it was so nice to get back. So we had to cancel Oregon Pinot Camp two years in a row because of the pandemic. We had never canceled camp. Uh, it was the 20th anniversary of the first camp in uh, in 2019 and so we had to cancel what would have been our, our 20th camp and um, it's a little bit weird it's like how your first birthday is like mm -hmm. the day you're born is not your first birthday um, and so we had to cancel twice in a row and we were really like heartbroken because there is really no Oregon Pinot camp that's not in person it is inherent to the program that we bring the trade here to see and feel and taste and experience, you know, diurnal shift of I needed a hoodie and now I've got I need sunscreen and you know like um, and and really have those moments with winemakers that are unscripted, you know. Um, and so it was such a joy to come back uh, for this year and to be able to finish up my time here with one more OPC. Um, it went really, really well. We had, for the first time, uh, Megan Markle, my coworker, who I believe you interviewed recently, um, as our camp manager. She was new to it this year and it did a beautiful job. It was really awesome. And uh, yeah, it was just, it just felt really, really good to do this in-person event and have all of these campers uh, get to experience this after so long. A lot of them are, you know, restaurant and uh, on-premise and, mm -hmm. you know, just, 
the relief of having you know those places still in business and still thriving um, and coming everybody coming through on the other side of this this you know huge <laughs> obstacle in our industry was really special. So you mentioned you kind of spoiler alert there that your your time in Oregon is wrapping up. So tell us about the future for you. What's coming next and. Uh, sort of short-term and long-term? Yeah, so um, I am doing kind of a weird couple of things coming up. I have my, my Master of Wine Stage 1 exam in July. Uh, that's going to be in Napa. Um, I am going to then drive across the country uh, to spend the rest of the year in, in Newark. Um, I have a really good uh, situation there where uh, my, my partner has an apartment in Newark and then I can go to a tasting group in, in New York City and I there's a lot of there's a great um, MW International Wine Center there and there's just a lot of amazing wine and wine bars I mean the market is pretty unbeatable in the US um, for what you can buy and also just in terms of events for uh, for education for trade education so um, it's a really good time to to be there and also I've been long distance with my partner for four years so <laughs> it was about time to uh, to to go in and join him there and there's only so many times a year when you can um, get off the WWE train and not leave the team hanging because we are a very very busy team we are always full throttle so uh, right after OPC was one of those times where I felt like it's not gonna be too difficult for the for the team so um, that's the short term, and I'm going to be doing uh, kind of a, a different thing that I, you know, getting back into something that I used to do, which is a lot more freelance work. Um, I really love doing writing and education materials and, and research and things like that. Um, so I will still be a contract working with the WWA on some of their education stuff. Um, I'm also going to be uh, working with some wineries, uh, some wine brands on various freelance work. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. I think, um, you know, being able to kind of pick my projects for a little while, uh, do something a little bit different, um, will also allow me to have time to study, but um, it still allows me to kind of, you know, stay connected to the, to the industry and especially the industry here. And um, yeah, just kind of, stretch out a little bit. It's been uh, it's been a wonderful five years at WBWA, but uh, this is a exciting new new challenge. So with that, with the ability to kind of focus on the MW stuff, uh, assuming that goes kind of as you plan, what 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 do you sort of what's next? What would you like to do if that were if that were finished? If that were in your rearview mirror, what would be next? Well, my passion is education. I love teaching. I love helping people uh, connect better with wine, whether it's people in the trade or uh, WSET students or even uh, consumers. I love teaching the, the public. I love, I, in Chicago, I actually had a side gig doing uh, private tastings occasionally in people's homes and I could just customize classes to whatever they wanted to learn. Um, and I think I envision doing something with that, whether it's having you know my own education center or working, for, working in one and um, you know, partnering with, with some really great organization. I, I think that that is kind of where I'm happiest. I love to write, so I think that's always going to be part of the mix. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I haven't thought too much more, uh, in, that hasn't come into focus too much more than that, just because like the whole get through the MW is kind, of, no, no, no problem. kind of a big one. Uh, yeah, so uh, that is the, that's the short term goal is uh, just, you know, really try to thrive in this program and, and you know, again, knock on wood that, uh, that I come out on the other side of it with, uh, with the, the pen. So we talked earlier about your sort of initial impressions of, of Oregon wine. I'm curious uh, from those first impressions to now, especially having been so in immersed in it, what are the biggest changes you've seen, especially in the Valley? Um, and what does the industry look like in 2022? I mean, the growth has been extraordinary. This isn't, I'm not saying anything new here, but just since I've been here, um, it's its pretty insane. I think we had like 30% increase in wineries in the Willamette Valley. Um, the growth in sparkling wine, the growth in Chardonnay, um, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. And 
I, it, I'm just as excited about the industry here as I was when I got here. I still think that this is one of the coolest places in the world for wine. Um, I think that you know quality is only getting better. The wineries are developing their digital skills and uh, under, like learning more about um, you know just the the business side of it and and kind of like developing to that level because you know this is a region full of really small businesses and um, I think that piece of it coming coming into its own is really exciting as well. Um, it's definitely a time of you know big changes. Of course, everybody you know people whenever there's a merger and acquisition, people really you know have a lot of, of, of feelings about that, and they should. It's a it, you know it, it's important that these that these changes um, be really thoughtful. And you know I don't have a feeling of um, like oh no this is the end if things like that happen uh, because I see the benefits of you know really. Um, really connected, really, really knowledgeable, high-skilled businesses coming here. I think that there's you know, something to be said for that. Um, but uh, of course, there's always gonna be that anxiety. I just keep having gravity, there's a lot of gravity in here. A lot of gravity. Yeah, um, I keep have. I don't, I keep seeing, you know, I see anxiety and I think it's natural about Oregon staying Oregon. I'm sure that you know when people think about like what Napa has become in terms of the incredible level of wealth and um, you know and money involved. I think that sometimes people get nervous. Well, that's just not. I mean, you can't have every region be Napa. Like Napa embraces their you know their luxury image. They there are plenty of people who are in Napa who don't embrace it, but and and they do just fine. But like you know. Napa has that as part of its identity. It didn't happen by accident. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Oregon will always be Oregon. I think L Laurent Montalieu says this a lot. He says, you know, don't worry about being Oregon staying Oregon. Oregon's going to stay Oregon. You know, he always says, you know, we, we, we work with this all the time and it's, it's, it's going to be fine. Like, Oregon is Oregon. You can't change it. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it's, it's really exciting and it's going to be interesting to see how we continue to attract talent, young people who want to be in the wine industry, who want to pursue this life the way that I did, because um, you know the pandemic brought such a hit to, to hospitality, staffing, and it was, you know, I'm not talking about just Oregon right now, I'm talking about the entire country. It was challenging to convince people to come to work in, in environments where, you know, often you might deal with belligerent customers or there's a risk of getting sick, um, you know, and I think we have to stay competitive with showing people how cool this region is, how much we take care of each other, making sure that professional development and long-term investment in your employees is part of the package, I think is gonna be really important. I'm not worried about that. I think it is happening and will continue to happen. But um, I just want to, I think that that is really a critical thing to not lose sight of. So as you look ahead for the industry then, what, what do you see happening next? Um, I certainly see more sparkling wine. I feel like, you know, the, the demand seems to be there and uh, people are really interested in, in it. I think there's been a lot of, you know, talk and interest in, um, grape varieties that are alternative grape varieties. I don't think Pinot's going anywhere. I think, you know, we, we make fantastic Pinot here. We will continue to make fantastic Pinot. Um, but I think it's, it's also really exciting to see these, you know, new and interesting grapes uh, coming, coming into a bottle and, and some of new ones being planted. Um, I don't know how I, feel, I don't know if I feel comfortable making projections that are like super specific about like you know economic growth because I'm not an expert, but it does seem like there's quite a bit of room to grow in the valley. I mean, if you look at how you know the South Valley is, there's quite a bit of distance between wineries. That's a beautiful, beautiful part of the valley, and uh, you know, it's it's just not as as densely planted at this point. But that doesn't mean it won't be. So. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see how the uh, development of a couple new South Valley AVAs how, will bring more interest and, and investment, um, and that that's super exciting as well. 
someone were to ask you for your words of wisdom or your advice on getting into the Oregon wine industry, what, what would you tell them? Oh, um, this is such a great industry for networking. I feel like if people sense that you are a hard worker and that you're real, um, they're gonna stick up for you and find opportunities for you. That's certainly my experience. I felt that, um, you know, in terms of job opportunity and job networking, you know, it was it was not it was not a challenge. It was it was almost easier than anywhere else I've ever worked because. Um, Having done a harvest, I had you know the friends that I worked harvest with, and of course Brian um, and you know the Alexana team. And I think once you have you know that couple of months of like just starting to kind of meet other producers and and learn the region, um, if people sense that you're here to work and that you're here to stay, I think you know at least for a little while, I think that that people do want to help each other. There is a desire to get good people into the industry here, and that's great. I think if you can work a harvest, that is an awesome way to get a start here. Um, if you don't have any harvest experience, uh, certainly if you have some sort of like um, restaurant back of house experience or something where you can show um, that you can work really hard, that you've been you know, in the trenches, <laughs> like, and uh, like that, that, that helps for sure. Um, and uh, if not, if you can um, try to do some sort of internship, we've gotten more, in the last couple of years, I've been encouraged to see more kind of apprenticeships, internships, especially diversity initiatives. Um, I think those are really great ways to bring people out here and make sure that they are supported. Um, we have to make sure that there is a pathway for them after that internship is over where they're still supported. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of really good opportunities to just come out here and, and get a job. Like it's, it's kind of amazing how, um, how many opportunities there are. And I think my biggest advice would, just, would be to just be super reliable because this is the West Coast. I think people value, um, you know, don't be too casual. Like, I think sometimes people come out here and it's like, oh, I'm going to come out here and uh, you know just relax and find myself. That's great, relax and find yourself. But like, um, I think there, you know, people really appreciate like reliability here. <laughs> don't I would say like you know don't lose sight of that. Um, and uh, yeah, that's I think I think that would be all of it. All my advice. Don't, don't find yourself too much is what don't, you're saying. Yeah, don't find yourself too much. Yeah, like it's it's good, you know, I think coming from the from the Rust Belt, coming out here, you definitely feel like, you know, man, everybody's so happy all the time. Like, what's wrong? What's wrong with these people? <laughs> After a few years, like, you start saying things like, oh, he's on his own journey, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and your Rust Belt family makes fun of you. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that it's, this is a very real and very hardworking industry and it's, um, Definitely, I've, I've, I have seen a couple of people who come out here and I, I think they might be just like on a summer camp in mm -hmm. their minds. Um, and you know, I think come here with the attitude of, of hard work and you'll be rewarded. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that you would like to cover? I don't think so, I'm so flattered. You're, 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 such, a, um, you're such an institution. I've listened to so many of uh, I've never you and the team. Like, I, I have listened to so many of your interviews and it is such a treasure to have this in our industry. I can't, you know, can't tell you the number of times I've sent them to media or, or consumers or just you know, shared them on our, you know, made sure that they're linked from our website. Like, I, I just really love that resource. So thank you. Well, thank you. That's very nice to hear. I've never been called an institution before. It's very, <laughs> very flattering. Thank you so much for your time today. And for and again, thank you to Stuart and Athena for letting us use their amazing space here. Yes. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.